All right. This morning we're continuing our series in 1 Samuel, and we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 13 today. Um, and we'll see in this uh, chapter, uh, we've kind of seen uh, the rise of Saul as Israel's first king. And up until this point, um, he's been a good guy. Like he's been a, a really good guy, he seems like a great candidate for the first king of Israel, seems like he's going to do a good job. He starts off humble, all this stuff. It seems like it's going to be really well, but today we're going to see Saul's first major failure. Um, he's going to make a mistake, and it's going to cost him. The consequence of this mistake is going to be he's going to lose his right to a dynasty, meaning uh, his son, his grandson, his great-grandson will not be king after him. He will be the last in his family uh, to be king, and, and that's going to be the consequence that's laid out because of one incident. One single moment of failure, one single error, and he loses that right. And we might say, like, man, that seems kind of harsh. That seems unforgiving. Like, where's the grace? Where's the mercy in that, right? You came to church, you thought you'd be hearing about grace and mercy, right? I mean, that's what we're about. And, and rightly so, if you feel that way, like as we read this, rightly so, because we preach the gospel, and the gospel is grace and mercy to us. Right, that we come to Christ because we find in him that all of our sin is washed away. Right, that we, we know we're sinners and we know some of us are great sinners. Some of us are, have mounds of sin. But regardless of how much sin you have, no matter how fallen you are, you can find forgiveness in Jesus. His death on the cross, his, he lived, came, lived a sinless life, perfect life, none of us could live. Died on the cross paying for our sin, the penalty of our sin, death on the cross, separation from God. He pays that price. He bears that for us because he was sinless. He can bear that for us. And if we accept that forgiveness that he's offered us, we can have eternal life, right? We can have the Holy Spirit now. We can have abundant life now. We can have eternal life to come. That when we die, we know we'll go and be with him in paradise, that someday Jesus will return and usher in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll get new bodies and we'll get to live with him forever in a perfect place and all of our sin will be washed away and all of the pain and suffering, all that will be washed away and that's all grace. We don't deserve it. That's grace. That's mercy, meaning he's removed the punishment that we deserve. He's withheld something that we do deserve, punishment. But sometimes, and that is what we believe and that's 100% true, Regarding our eternal destiny, regarding the state of our souls, the most important thing that we can deal with here on this earth. But sometimes in the church, we get confused about grace and mercy. And we think that it should apply to everything. Because often it does. Often someone who has experienced that grace and mercy that the gospel provides will be quick to forgive, quick to extend grace, quick to extend mercy to their brothers and sisters when they hurt one another. Now that you might do something to a believer, they might extend you grace, they might extend you mercy. And rightly so, what God is doing in the heart of a believer should lead them to be gracious and merciful. But that should still be seen as amazing. Right? We sing the song, Amazing Grace, because grace isn't expected. Right? What we expect is justice. What we expect is justice. And that should be our default Grace and mercy can be extended by the one who's offended. It cannot be demanded by the offender. 
Grace and mercy cannot be demanded by the offender. And so often in the church, we've gotten that confused and it has caused serious problems because what you see oftentimes, what you see a lot of the time is someone in a position of power, like an elder or a deacon or a pastor, who screws up, hurts someone, does something bad, and tells the congregation, no, you must give me grace. You must give me mercy. You must forgive me. That's not how it works. So what we're going to see in this passage today is that consequences still can happen, still should happen. Justice should be served unless the one who's offended decides to extend grace and mercy. And especially in positions of leadership, leaders must be held accountable. What's going to happen with Saul today? Even one mistake can, can, um, <coughs> can derail the whole thing. So we'll see that as we dig in here. Today, we'll look first at verses 1 through 7 of chapter 13. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gebeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Okay, so uh, unfortunately, we have to start off by talking about a copyist error. So... When we talk about the authority of the scriptures, we say that they were, they're perfect in, in their original autographs, right? They're, they're 100% perfect in their original autographs. We don't have any of those original first copies. We don't have any of those first, the, 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 the hand that wrote them originally, we don't have any of those. We have a great number of, uh, of copies, of early copies, transcripts. We have a lot of that. And in this, some, at some point, most biblical scholars believe there's some kind of error because the most literal translation of verse 1 is Saul was one year old when he became king and he reigned two years over Israel. Now, if Saul is doing all of these things as an infant, um, I mean, there's a whole other thing going on here, right? That, but that's clearly not what's going on. He's clearly not one years old when he begins to reign um, the tallest and most handsome man in Israel as a one-year-old. No. Right? So there's something wrong here with the numbers. Something got mistranscribed. Mis, uh, when we look at the, uh, the, the Greek Old Testament, that we call the Septuagint, so this copy that's made later on translating the Hebrew into the Greek, they use the, the, the numbers 30, that he was 30 years old when he began to reign and that he reigned for 40 years. Um, and that's what the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 13, verse 21 he describes Saul's reign as lasting 40 years. 
So because of all of those factors, um, it seems reasonable to assume that Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign as king and that he reigned for 40 years. Um, that this sentence is meant to be a summary uh, heading of, okay, now here, let's talk about Saul's reign. And so it seems reasonable that those are the numbers to plug in there. Now, um, there's a lot more we could say about it and about the numbers and why those numbers might be the right numbers. Um, and if you want to talk about that, I'd love it. But if you're cool with me just saying, hey, 30 years and 40 years, then we can move on. If you, if you want to get, I mean, if you want to get into the weeds on this, I'd love to get into the weeds with you. So just come, come see me after. Um, but otherwise, we're going to move forward with assuming 30 years and 40 years. And using that timeline, scholars believe that the, the war described here, which is often referred to as the War of Independence, we'll look at this week and next week, um, it occurred during his 23rd year on the throne. So Saul drafts an army of 3,000 men. He commands two divisions of 1,000 soldiers each. His son Jonathan commands one division. Um, and Jonathan's division defeated a Philistine garrison in uh, Gebeah. Now, one note here, because there's a lot of these, uh, you see a lot of the, these variations on this word. Um, Geba, Geba of Benjamin, Gebeah, Gebeah of Benjamin, Gebeah of Saul, and Gebeah of Elohim, they all refer to the same place um, we might call Geba. Um, and if you think, like, why, well, why do they keep changing the word? Um, right? You, we, we do this as well, right? We talk about Sacramento. You might say Sacramento. You might say Sac. You might say Sactown. You might say the capital of California. Right? There's just variations on how it's being described. Um, and, and that's all that's going on here. They all refer to the same place. And so Saul trumpets this victory across Israel, that, hey, Jonathan and this army have defeated um, this. But this victory is also a provocation, right? We see that it says there that the, the, the Israelites had become a stench to the Philistines. And it means, hey, they noticed. They noticed. Like, that. yes, you defeated them, but the Philistines had been kind of like encamped right there on Israel's borders, pressing in on them all the time. And the, and the fact that the Israelites went and defeated this garrison now makes the Philistines take notice. So like they notice, like, you guys smell something? I'm noticing these people over here and we may need to do something about them. So it got their attention. It woke them up to where now they're noticing the Israelites and they might try to do something about it. So the people are called to Gilgal once again, where most recently Saul had been selected as king. Saul's essentially calling out like, hey, we need more than just the standing army. We need to draft people. You all need to come out to Gilgal because we're going to go to battle against the Philistines once again. And the Philistines uh, muster their troops. They gather them at Michmash, uh, where Saul's uh, 2,000 troops had been. Um, and uh, this is not important at all, but I just think, isn't Michmash such a fun word to say? I love it. It's like my favorite place name in the, in the Bible. Try it. Michmash. Try it. Mikmash. Isn't that fun? Gosh. I wish I could live at Mikmash. All right. So they, they, they muster these troops at Mikmash, and, um, and, and they've got, it says they have 30,000 chariots. And again, there's some problems with numbers in this passage um, because most biblical scholars look at that and go, well, it's not even a reasonable amount of chariots that anyone would have, any army, whether you're talking about Egypt or Babylon, any of these bigger nations, that's more chariots than they would have. 
uh, and they wouldn't even be useful in this particular terrain. You wouldn't want this, this mass of chariots. So they assume it's probably 3,000. Um, again, we can get way more into that and why these numbers are not correct, but that seems more, more likely. But in any case, whatever the exact number of troops was, the impression they gave is clear enough. It says they were like sand, right? Sand on the beach. Like, it's just like mass of troops, like sand on the seashore in multitude. So many troops. And so the Israelites recognized they're in trouble. And it says when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, what do they do? They hide. They hide. They hide wherever they can. Even in, in cisterns and in all these places, they, they get in whatever hole they can. They go and hide. And I, I provided a map in the uh, study guide or a, a picture in the study guide of some of the terrain in this area that we're talking about. And you can see all the little caves and things that there are, places where people could go and hide. And so the Israelites, they're just hiding. They're, they're scared of this massive army. Some of them even cross over the Jordan going and fleeing to Gad where the, the, on the other side of the Jordan to get away from the Philistine danger. And those who are still with Saul at Gilgal, says, trembled as they followed him, right? So they followed him trembling. You can see that they're literally hiding behind their king. They're hiding behind, they're like, okay, we'll follow you, Saul. Like, oh, they're, they're trembling, following him, hiding behind him, hiding in caves. They are terrified. None of them seem to think to go to Yahweh for help. None of them seem to think to go to God for help. What had God told them when they, went, when they asked for a king? He said, well, I'm your king, but if you want a king, I'll give you a king. But he says it shouldn't change our relationship, but it has. They, they turn to Saul. They go and hide instead of turning to God. Saul seems to be the only one who thinks about turning to God at all. We talk uh, sometimes about, or about flight or, uh, fight or flight, right? This reaction to stress. That when, when, you, when you are in a stressful situation, a dangerous situation, your natural reaction will be either fight or flight. Um, to either stand and fight or to, to run away. Some people even add freeze, like you just don't even know what to do. That's that natural reaction that we have. And, and we all have that reaction. That's a natural thing. That's part of our, our stress response. But we need to practice adding God into that stress response. That when we, when we are faced with those situations, we need to turn to God in our desperation. We need to make that part of our natural response. As we see demonstrated, for example, in Psalm chapter 70, 1 through 5, where it says, this, this psalm of desperation says, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Yahweh, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Yahweh, do not delay. We'll continue here, verses 8 through 15. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, 
bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Samuel went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of Yahweh. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of Yahweh your God with which he commanded you. For then Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought a man after his own heart, and Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept the command what Yahweh commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up with, from Gilgal to Gebeah of Benjamin. So Saul waits seven days. He's got all the people with him at Gilgal. They're ready to go to war. But they need to seek God's favor first. And Saul had made an arrangement with Samuel, who's still a prophet and priest, to come and make a sacrifice before they go to, to war to seek God's favor before they go to war, to ask for his aid. They're going to make this sacrifice. And, he, and they made some kind of arrangement, we don't know how, to say, okay, in seven days I'll meet you there. And so they're waiting and waiting, but Samuel doesn't show up within the seven days. And the people who joined Saul, they're beginning to scatter. Right? They're making a, a very calculated, a very reasonable um, calculation in their minds of like, okay, we can either stay here and we can fight with our king. He can, we can fight behind him and beside him and maybe we'll defeat the Philistines and we'll maintain our freedom. We'll maintain our independence as a nation and we can continue to live and direct our, our, our ways. But maybe the Philistines beat us and if they beat us, we'll die, right? If I'm just an individual Israelite farmer and I'm there and I'm ready to fight with my king I, okay, I could fight with him, and maybe we'll win, and we'll maintain our independence. But if we lose, I lose everything. I probably lose my life. My family probably dies. My farm is gone. Or I can go back home. And if I go home, and I'm just a farmer, then when the Philistine army shows up, I didn't come to fight them. And I'm just here as an independent farmer, and can I continue? And they can make a, now I can make a deal. I can negotiate. Can I continue to live here, and I'll give you a portion of my crops. And I get to continue living, and my family continues living. We're maybe a little poor, we're less free, but maybe I get to continue to live here. And so that's the calculation they're all making. And the longer that the people stay, the more people leave, the, that calculation changes. Right, that calculation changes. We got a lot of people there. You go, yeah, we can win, we can fight. Yeah, all right. Okay, oh, we're still waiting on Samuel. He's not showing up. Okay, those guys left. Oh, those guys that are, oh, that's my neighbor. He left? He's not going to fight with us? Hmm. Oh, I'm still going to stay. Oh, but now more people have left. Now the victory is looking less likely. So I don't know if I, can, if I should even stick this out. Right? The, the, the calculation just continues to change as they try to figure this out. And so more and more people are leaving as Samuel is running late. And so Saul offered the burnt offering himself. Now, Saul is not a priest, and he's not qualified to make this offering. And that's a big deal, 
right? There are extensive laws concerning the offerings, the priests who, uh, the offerings and the priests who make them in the law of Moses. Right? This is not this is not nothing. This is a big deal. And if if uh, if you're not sure why it's a big deal, you probably weren't here when we went through Leviticus. Um, but we went through Leviticus. It's extensive and it's detailed and it matters. And the laws concerning burnt offerings are in chapter one. Now you don't even have to read very far to know that there's there's some specific laws about making these offerings. And and Saul's just not qualified to make them. He's not okay with. He's not the guy who can make them. God takes the priesthood and the sacrifices very seriously. We saw this after all of these things are put in place, all the laws are put in place, the, the, temp, the tabernacle is um, consecrated, and then immediately after that, they make their very first offerings. Immediately after that, Aaron and his, Aaron's two sons make an unauthorized sacrifice, and let's see what happens in, in Leviticus chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So they go and make this unauthorized sacrifice. Again, this happens right away. They make this unauthorized sacrifice, and what happens? The fire comes out and consumes them. Immediately they die. God takes this very seriously. God takes this very seriously. And, and Saul is not qualified to make this sacrifice. And he knew it, right? We see him condemn himself. He makes it clear that he knew it when he responds to Samuel. Samuel says, what have you done? And, <clears throat> and Samuel, Saul says, I, I forced myself. I forced myself. I had to make myself do it. Meaning I knew it was wrong but I forced myself to go against what I knew was wrong and make the sacrifice because you were running late, right? He tries to make an excuse. You were running late, so I forced myself. People were leaving. I forced myself to do it. But we have to consider the motivation. Why did Saul make this offering, right? He says that it's because he wanted to seek God's favor before they go to battle, but he could have done that privately. He could have sought God's favor privately. There's nothing to say that he couldn't go and pray and talk to God on his own and make his own. And he could have even instructed the people to do that. Hey, men, the priest isn't here, but we need to go to battle. Everybody tonight, go to your tents and pray and talk and ask for God's favor in battle today. I'm going to do the same thing. And they could have all done that. They could have even done that collectively. They could have prayed together. They could have sought God in that way. They didn't have to make a sacrifice. But why did, why, so why did Saul do it? He's putting on a show. He's putting on a show. That's a lot more impressive for Saul to say, oh, our priest isn't, isn't here? Guess what? I can be the priest. I can do it. I can be everything for you. I can be the priest. I'm going to offer the sacrifice. And again, that's a much better look, right? Because just asking people to go pray, like, people don't want that. That's not as impressive. Right? That's, prayer, prayer does not seem powerful. Prayer does not seem important. You know how I know that? Because our prayer meetings, I talked about the prayer meetings earlier, we normally have like six or eight people. There's a lot more people than that in this church. But people don't think it's important. They don't come. It's always been the case. Any church you go to, prayer meeting is going to be the worst attended meeting 
that, that there is. Those people don't think it's important, and it doesn't look or seem powerful or important. So Saul puts on a show. He offers a burnt offering sacrifice, which would be very impressive. You have to have a big fire for that. You have a big, a big fire. You've got a lot of smoke. You've got great smells. Right? You've got all this stuff going on. Big show of, look what we're doing to get God's favor. Now let's go to battle. That seems a lot stronger. And so he's putting on this show. And so Saul's consequence, because it, what Saul did was outright rebellion. He knew it was wrong. And we know that he knew it was wrong even because if he had, presuming that he did what God had commanded all kings of Israel to do in Deuteronomy chapter 17, where the laws for kings are listed out, he's supposed to write his own copy of the law. Right? So he would have written his own copy of the law. He would have written his own copy of Leviticus. He would have known all of these things. He knew what he was doing was wrong, and he did it anyway. Outright rebellion, brazen rebellion against God. And so his consequence is, no one will reign after you and your family. You, you will, your reign will end with you. Your son will never be king. Which, again, might not seem like a big deal to us, but for this time and place and for monarchies in general, that's a big deal. That's a big deal that, hey, this is going to end with you. And that's his consequence. And it seems brutal, but again, it's because he's a leader, because he's setting this example, he knew the law and he brazenly broke it. What he tried to do here is justify his own rebellion. Right? He entered this, this kind of category of justified rebellion, which we see even to this day in the church, right? People try to justify their sin, give reasons, exceptions, reasons why, well, I know generally people shouldn't do this, but here's why I can do it. Here's why I'm the exception. Here's why my sin is okay. Try to justify our sin, justify our rebellion. And we do it in, in all kinds of ways, right? Small, small lies or deceptions, those are okay, right? We might say, like, well, but it's just a small thing. It doesn't really affect a lot of stuff, but it saves me from some embarrassment or something like that. Hey, I can, I can make a small lie. I can make, have a small deception. We do it with gossip all the time, right? That, that you may, and I'm sorry if you did this, but you may have just done it in the courtyard because you go, oh, hey, you know, did you, uh, did you hear about Sarah? Well, we really need to be praying for her. Yeah, did you hear what she did? Okay. That's, that's this gossip disguised as prayer requests. It happens all the time. People do it all the time. But that's, that's what we see. Again, that's justified rebellion. No, 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 I wasn't gossiping. I wasn't gossiping. I was, we were just, I'm just concerned. I just care so much. Right? We see it all the time with with adultery, with sex outside of marriage, either before marriage or, or even after. There's people that justify, like, well, but we're going to get married. Of course, we're going to get married, so it's fine, right? Like, we, we're, it's, it's, we're going to make it right eventually. Or, well, but my marriage is kind of, it's on the rocks, it's falling apart, so it's okay that I, I, that, I, that I go outside of that covenant. There's all kinds of things that we do when we justify our sin justify our rebellion, but rebellion is rebellion, sin is sin. And sometimes we face the consequences like Saul did here. But we'll continue here, verses 15 through 23. Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men, 
And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. The raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third for a shekel for sharpening axes or for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there were neither swords nor spears found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan and his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So Saul is left here with a very small army. He's got 600 men. And the Philistines send their forces out in three companies, going in three different directions, which is bad news for the Israelites. There's nothing they can do. And, and now these these three companies, they're raiding companies, they can go out and, and no one will be able to stop them. There's nothing they can do. These 600 soldiers, they would have to choose just maybe one of them to stop if they can even do that. And the, and the, and, and the, the Israelites also, then we have this section, verses uh, four, 19 through, through 23, that starts with, now there was no blacksmith in Israel, which it seems like a weird, like, wait, what are we talking about blacksmiths all of a sudden? But what, what we're setting up here is really the helplessness of the Israelites because they, that, that's their big disadvantage. The, the big advantage the Philistines had more than anything was superior military technology, namely ironwork. They had iron weapons and they would sell iron to the Israelites so that they had like farming tools. They would sell farming, iron, iron farming tools to the Israelites, but they wouldn't sell them weapons and they wouldn't sell them or teach them how to do blacksmithing. So they didn't have their own blacksmiths to make them weapons. They didn't have any of the tools that they needed to do that. So all they have are farming tools to fight with, essentially. While, they, while the Philistines have armed their, their entire companies of, of soldiers. So the Israelites are helpless. They're helpless. They have only 600 men with only two real swords between them. And their king had violated God's commandments and lost the support of their prophet priest. And so what we see is that they can't win this battle without God's help. And that's where we're going to leave it today. We'll see the battle next week. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that next week in chapter 14. But I'll wrap up with this three takeaways for today's message. Number one, learn to wait on God. That's what Saul wouldn't do. He wouldn't wait for Samuel. He wouldn't seek God's favor. He was putting on a show for his own sake, trying to prove his own strength and his own independence. He wouldn't wait on God. We need to learn to wait on him. Number two, do not attempt to justify your rebellion. Right? When we are caught in our sin, when we rebel against God and, and defy him and and all of those things, we need to not try to justify, we need to just confess it and repent. Again, Jesus is faithful to, to forgive us our sins when we confess them 
And that's what we need to do. And then lastly, admit your helplessness. Admit that you need God, right? Because the Israelites were in this helpless situation, but they hadn't been previously. Things had been going well before this. Everything had been going well. All of a sudden, they find themselves in this helpless situation. And that's often where we're at, too. We're, we're like, we get ourselves into situations where we feel pretty good. Like, hey, we're, we're pretty set. Like, job's going well. Family life's going well. Yeah, everything's working out for me. I feel like I'm pretty secure. But any of that can be taken away at any moment. We can have a, a health scare. We can have tragedy strike. Things can happen. We are in desperate need of God, whether we actively feel it today or not. We need him. Because we are truly helpless. So we need to learn to admit that helplessness, admit that dependence that we have on him. So that it's not new when that tragedy strikes and something happens and that's taken away from us. We've already submitted ourselves to him. We already have practiced turning to him and recognizing our need for him no matter where we're at in our lives today. I'm going to pray here in just a minute and then we're going to take communion together. Um, we take communion together we are remembering Jesus' broken body and shed blood. And so it's a good time to, to confess those things, that the, to search our hearts and, and, and see what, what do we need to confess that Jesus has already forgiven, but that we need to see as forgiven. So we need to examine our hearts. And, and communion is open to anybody who has accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. If you've accepted the forgiveness that I talked about at the beginning the gospel that we talked about, that's already a reality in your life. You're free to take communion with us. You don't have to be a member of our church to take communion. Um, and if that's something that you would like to do that you haven't done yet and you don't know how, like I'd love to talk to you about that uh, afterwards. Also afterwards, we'll have a prayer team that will be available up here. They'd love to pray for you. Um, you can just come on up and, and they'll pray for you right here in person. Would you bow with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and uh, the chance we have to read your word and learn from these, um, these events from, from so long ago, these personalities, these people from so long ago that are so much like us. And we pray that you would um, speak to us, that you would change us as a result of, of what we hear from your word. We pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.